My name is Marlon. Welcome to my podcast. You can find a blog post that accompanies this message on prmarlon.com. That's P-R-M-A-R-L-O-N dot C-O-M. May God bless you. morning as Christmas season is just around the corner and there is this idea that some people have that the birth of Jesus it's they may not say it quite this way but it's it's the way that it gets talked about It, it was like the software update for God you know it's God 2.0 the grace version and now things are better because Jesus was born and, and it, it, it bothers me a little bit right this idea that God is evolving and becoming nicer over time there's another view that I'm more biased towards that it was always the plan it was always salvation by grace and, and that's the approach that I'd like to take this morning as as we look at, at the Old Testament and look at the seeds of what we know to be the Christmas story, but all the way back in the Old Testament, God's plan all along. And as usual, I do have some extra notes. They're, my blog will be up in probably 30 minutes or so. So if you go there now, it won't be up, but if you go there after the service, it will be up. And this is part one, so I invite you already to come back next week for part two so the things i'm saying today will make even more sense next week and next week's message will make more sense if you're here today so you're already here so you got half of it right just make sure you come back next week again and we're gonna be looking through the bible i hope you have your bibles with you because we're gonna be starting at the beginning and it's always a good habit to bring your bibles and hold the preacher accountable and also study it for yourself as we go over it together before we jump into the text i invite you to bow your heads with me for prayer father in heaven here we are we thank you for the freedom that we have in this country that we can come together and worship and study your word and lord thank you for giving us something that's worth singing about thank you for giving us good news that we get to spread to others And Lord, as as we want to understand the good news a little bit better this morning, as we go through the Bible, please guide us. Send your Holy Spirit, Lord, and speak to us through your text that we may learn more about you, fall in love with you afresh, and be drawn closer to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 1 and 2, the, the very beginning of the Bible, the foundation for everything else that happens, it can be very frustrating to a lot of people. There are many that want Genesis 1 or somewhere in the Bible, but hopefully Genesis 1, to explain the details of how God created everything that there is. Reality, time, and space, and all of these things. How did God do it? And they are very frustrated with Genesis 1 because it does not address the how. It doesn't answer the questions that science is asking. I I like the way that um, there is a a rabbi and a Jewish philosopher uh, called Abraham uh, Joshua Heschel 
uh, brilliant man. He, I think he passed away in the early 2000s, late 90s. There's some great stuff by him out there. And, and there is a book that he has entitled, God in Search of Man, a Philosophy of Judaism. And I really like this quote from it. It says, the book of Genesis does not intend to explain anything. The mystery of the world's coming into being is in no way made more intelligible by a statement such as, at the beginning, God created heaven and earth. The Bible and science do not deal with the same problem. Scientific theory requires, what is the cause of the universe? The Bible is interested in teaching us about the creator of all things and to reveal to us the knowledge of his will. The Bible teaches us that God is alive, that he is our creator and redeemer, teacher and lawgiver. So how do we then study Genesis? And the story from the beginning without getting frustrated by the answers that it does not give us well I would recommend you read the Bible not just Genesis but the entire book and instead of asking questions that the text is not answering how about we read the text and see what information does it provide when these words were written down what was the idea that they were trying to get across so for example Genesis 1 1 if you have your Bibles with you, you can follow along. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us several things. It says, when you go back to the very beginning, you have God in contrast to atheism, right? So it's very clear. God is there at the beginning. What else? God created alone. It's not polytheism. It's not like God called, hey guys, let's go. Let's do this together. You're in charge of this. No, no, no. God does this by himself as opposed to polytheism. God rules over creation in contrast to pantheism where God is somehow in the midst of it. Matter had a beginning as opposed to materialism that says that matter was always there. It also says the ultimate reality is God and not humanity. God created the universe out of nothing. Hebrews 11.3 goes into more details on that. God stands outside and beyond creation to undertake in the act of creation. And God's being is not confused with creation or dependent on it in any way. Now, if you grew up in a Christian nation or even in the West and it's more secular, you're okay with all of these statements. It doesn't really cause you any discomfort. But if you were to study ancient religions or people who say like, oh, Christianity is just like all the other world religions, well, then go back to the creation account in different world religions and you see how unique this one is. The author was trying to describe how the God of the Bible, the creator God, is different from all these other gods. That's what the text is interested in telling us. So as we study this morning, I want us to focus, what does this text tell us about the heart of God? So we saw these statements briefly, and I want to jump ahead a little bit to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, because it begins to apply to us a little bit more clearly. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. 
And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So we're not looking at how God created. We're looking at what does this tell me about God and about his heart. Well, it says that we are created in God's image, male and female combined. So if you look at a man and traditionally masculine features, that tells us something about God. If you look at a woman and traditionally feminine features, that also tells us something about God. Both male and female are the image of God. Does that make sense? It's not one above the other. It's the two together. What else does this tell me about God? It tells me that God gave us a responsibility. We weren't created just to be lazy and do nothing. That's not healthy for us. God says, hey, you're supposed to have dominion over everything. Now, some people hear that and say, oh, I get to abuse everything. Like, no, that's not what it means to lead. That's not what it means to have dominion. That's not what it means to be a leader, the head, the one in power, the one in control. God created us in His image. What does God do for us? He provides. He helps. And He creates us to have dominion over everything on earth. That means we have a responsibility towards everything else. It's kind of like having pets, right? It's your dog. It's your cat. Does that mean you kick it around and you keep it starving? No. You love it and you take care of it and you make sure it's healthy and you, you are happy when you see that your pet is happy. Does that make sense? That's our relationship to creation. It gives us joy to care and to provide and to have that responsibility over all of creation. It's also interesting that God provides herbs, trees, plants, fruits as food for all of creation. You know what this means? No killing. There is no death. This is also my biggest theological issue with the idea of God and evolution happening somehow together because that introduces death in a perfect world. And the chapter ends with God saying that everything was very good as opposed to God created and like, eh, it's okay, it'll evolve. You know, it'll struggle to survive and it'll die and then the stronger one will live. And then, you know, over millions of years, it'll be good eventually. No, when God finished, it was good. A finished product, a perfect product. There is no death. Everything manages to survive by eating the plants and the fruit. Does that make sense so far? So far, so good. Perfect world God created. We have a purpose. We have a responsibility. And that's who God is, right? He places us in the perfect world. He wants us to share in His, in whatever it's like to be God. We are made in His image. We're not sure exactly all the details of what that means, but it seems to be related to having autonomy, power, the ability to love, the freedom to choose, and to have a sense of responsibility towards things that are under our control. So far, so good. We're getting the heart of God, the idea of what God is like through this description of creation. But there is this odd thing that comes up. Everything is done and perfect, by the end of sixth day, 
of the sixth day, why is there a seventh day? Nothing is lacking after the sixth day of creation. The physical world is all there. Adam and Eve were created, all the plants, all the animals, everything is there. The food sources are there. But yet the creation week is seven days long. Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 2. It says, thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. Okay, so we're good. Verse 2, and on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. Then God did what? Blessed the seventh day and did what? Sanctified it because in it he rested from all the work which God had created and made. Now, once again, when you compare this to other world views of the creation story, a lot of the gods are creating in, out of matter that already existed. Some of it comes out of fighting. In some versions, humans are created to serve the gods. The gods create humans and says, okay, now I'm going to sit back and you bring me food, you bring me offerings, you bring me all these things, and then you build this thing for me and you do this other thing for me, and we're essentially created to serve the gods. God creates the perfect world. The very next thing he does, the next period of 24 hours, right? The next day, the next morning, God says, okay, day off. But, but we, imagine you, the boss hires you and you show up for the first day of work and says, okay, vacation. What? That doesn't, how does that? And this is how God works. Because God did not create us to do something for him. Turns out he created us because he wanted to hang out with us. The seventh day, the spirit of rest, it highlights the purpose God created in order to have a relationship, community. This is his top priority. This is the first thing on the list. Once creation is ready, what does everybody get to do? Rest. Spend time together. Well, does God get tired? No. Isaiah talks about that. Well, the, are Adam and Eve tired? They were created the day before. They're full of energy. Nobody's tired. There isn't a physical need for the Sabbath. The Sabbath rest highlights that God prioritizes relationship. It tells us something about the heart of God. This is not a rule for people. Oh, now you have to do this. Otherwise, you're in trouble. You get to spend time with God. You get to rest with Him. And you can say, well, pastor, I don't know. I think you're a little bit biased. I saw the name on the church, Seventh-day Adventist Church, Seventh-day. Ah, I see what you're doing there. You're, you're reading this into the text. Well, let's, let's follow along and see if the rest of the Bible supports this notion that the heart of God longs and yearns for a relationship with us. And spoiler alert, when Jesus comes, one of his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Is that a new thing or is that who God has been all along. Well, let's, let's skip to, to chapter 3 when, when we come into problems, right? There's a challenge. Something goes wrong in this perfect world. And Adam and Eve, they mistrust God. They, they disobey God. They believe that God is withholding good things from them. And let's see how God reacts to that. Genesis chapter 3, starting verse 8, it says here that Adam and Eve heard the sound of whom? The Lord God. What was the Lord God doing? Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. 
Who shows up in the garden? God. God shows up. He's just walking. I don't know. What does it look like God is looking for? Communion? Fellowship? Relationship? God takes initiative. He shows up. He's walking in the garden. Adam and Eve who have sinned, how do they react? They hide. God shows up. They hide. The heart of God revealed in this story, what is God looking for? Communion. Because of their sin, now they're afraid of God. They're afraid of what God might do. They're afraid of how God is going to react. And God could have shown up really angry. God could have caused them to immediately feel extreme, excruciating pain and fall on the floor. God could have used them to just burst into flames. God could have done a number of things, but yet he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hear him and they hide. He's not scary. He's not hunting them down. He's, but let's keep reading. Verse 9, then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Adam, where are you? Now, do you mean to tell me that God really doesn't know where Adam is? No, the rest of the Bible makes it clear. You can't hide from God. So why is he calling out to Adam? This is telling us something about the heart of God. What is God looking for? What is God seeking? Relationship, dialogue, conversation. Hey, let's talk about this. What did you do? What just happened? You know, for parents here, you know how it goes. You know exactly what your child did, but you want to hear it from them. Let's talk through this so that we can learn from this. Does it sound like what God is doing? Hey, let's talk. He's not angry. He's not chasing them down. He's not, oh, the God of the Old Testament, man, he's bloody and he's miserable and, and people have to do all these things. Good thing Jesus came and updated the software and now God is nice. No, same God all the way through. One God in the Bible, one plan of salvation. And we're getting to that here in a little bit. So verse 10, Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded that you should not eat? Dialogue, conversation. Adam begins to blame Eve. And, you know, it goes back and forth. But God is asking questions. God is seeking a dialogue. He wants to figure this out together. And then if you continue to read the story, there's a judgment that takes place. After all, Adam and Eve did sin. They rebelled against God. And God told them that the day they ate of the fruit, and the Hebrew translated literally says, dying you will die. Usually in Hebrew, when you have the same verb twice, it's like, surely you will die. But it could also be that dying you will die, as in the, the dying process will begin. Yet at the heart of this judgment... In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says, God is talking about talking to the serpent. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, speaking of the seed, in the singular masculine, I believe pointing to Jesus, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Isaiah 53 verse 5 kind of explains this a little bit more. Um, but the idea here is, and the, the original Hebrew could be translated crush. So the, the, the force of the verb is the same for both. What changes is the placement. One hurts, bruises, or crushes the heel of the other, and one gets his head crushed. For the serpent, it's a death blow. For he who do deliver the death blow to the serpent, he will also be wounded, but it will not be a 
uh, it won't end him. So my understanding of this, when Jesus died on the cross, that's the seed of the woman receiving the wound on his heel. He was brutally murdered. Satan not only killed him, he tortured him. Not Satan himself, using people who were following his will. Yet Jesus did not stay dead. When Jesus rose from the grave, Satan's power was destroyed. Now the full fulfillment will come when Jesus comes again. We're going to have a whole sermon on that coming up. But this prophecy from right here, Genesis chapter 3, in the midst of all of this, God's already telling them, by the way, someone is coming. Someone is coming. The seed of the woman, he. So the seed, you can refer to offspring, but this he mentioned here, I believe this is talking about Jesus. The promise, the plan of salvation right here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It was the plan from the very beginning. It was the plan all along. But, you know, once again, I could be biased. I could be reading this into the text. Let's read a little bit further. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Oh, for verse 21 to make sense, we, we need to go back to verse 7. In Genesis chapter 3, it says, The eyes of both of them were open. This is when they eat the fruit. And they knew that they were naked. So they gained new knowledge. With that knowledge came shame. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So they saw they were naked. Like, no problem. We're intelligent. We're smart. We can solve our own problem. They made outfits for themselves, clothing for themselves out of fig leaves. Did it work? No. Because when God showed up, what did they do? They hid themselves. When God said, why did you hide? He said, because we're naked. Well, what do you mean you're naked? You made clothing for yourselves out of the fig leaves. It didn't work out. Their own efforts did not cover their shame, did not take away their guilt. Does that make sense? They tried. They tried their best. They made an effort. I'm sure the fig leaf outfit, outfits were amazing, right? Adam and Eve were just really talented, super intelligent. I'm sure it came out really nice. But they were still afraid of God. They still experienced shame. They still felt naked despite their best efforts to cover themselves. Maybe some of you see where I'm going. Chapter, verse 21, it says, Also for Adam and, Adam and his wife, the Lord made what? Tunics of skin and clothed them. Who made the tunics? Who clothed them? What were the tunics made out of? Where do you get skin from? The text is not super explicit, but I believe it's not a big stretch to say that the first death that took place on this earth was when God had to kill an innocent animal to provide clothing for those who were guilty. God takes the initiative. God talked with them. God makes the promise that someone is coming to defeat the serpents. Meanwhile, God provides them with clothing. God is teaching them. I save you. I clothe you. I forgive you. You don't save yourselves. I save you. The gospel right here in the beginning of the entire Bible. Not something new and revolutionary that Jesus begins to teach when he comes. That's just an ongoing process. And ultimately, next week we're going to talk about that. Jesus does come and does all of these things. But this was the plan all along. We never saved ourselves. The sacrifices, and when you come to chapter 4, 
Oh, sorry, let me read this verse. I'm glad I put it on the slide. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin, talking about Jesus, to be sin for us, meaning Jesus had our sins on him, that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. We become the righteousness, the right behavior, the right standing, the right thing of God in Jesus, which means that my righteousness, my right standing, my right behavior, you know, when you, if the police pulls you over and you're not speeding, right, you, it should be okay. Like, hey, you know, you know why I pulled you over? You know, I, I wasn't speeding. What's the matter? Oh, your light was out or something. No, here's a warning. It's fine. You're not, but should you be doing something wrong and you get pulled over? Now there is this more tension. Right? Because I'm not behaving correctly. My behavior is unrighteous. A quick way of explaining this. So the idea of our right standing before God, meaning when you look at the law and you look at us, like, well, yep, they're doing everything right. It, it doesn't come from us. It comes from God. He gives that to us. He covers us. He does this for us because of His love, because of who He is. There is no uh, example here of Adam and Eve doing anything to deserve this it's just the way the story reads god notices their need they could not make clothing for themselves god doesn't tell them go kill an animal and make clothing god does it for them this idea that a sacrifice took place and that this is understood i think it's made even more clear when you go to genesis chapter 4. it talks about the birth of the children of adam and eve they have two boys. And then as you read the story, and I encourage you to read it if you're not familiar with it, when you go home, read through these first few chapters of Genesis. Actually, read through all of Genesis. It's an amazing book. But the, the boys have an issue when it comes to sacrifices. Well, there's no Mosaic law. There's no Levitical priest. There's no tabernacle. Why are they offering sacrifices? Perhaps this is tied to Adam and Eve getting their clothing. Perhaps during that process, God explained to them the plan of salvation. Substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? That means that I don't pay the price for my sins. Somebody else does. The animal that dies didn't do anything wrong. The animal dies because we did something wrong. And it points to Jesus dying, not because he did anything wrong, but because we did something wrong and then he dies in our behalf. The same plan, the same idea. Now notice... What happens in Genesis chapter 4, verse 6? Cain is angry with his brother because God accepted Abel's offering. And Abel offered um, from the best of his flock. And Cain's offering was not respected. So he's upset. Verse 6, it says, The Lord said to whom? Cain. Who initiates the conversation? God. Has Cain made the sin yet, committed the sin yet? Not yet. His brother is still alive. He's angry and God shows up. Why would God show up just because Cain is angry? God knows what's going to happen. And God shows up and says, hey, let's talk about this first. Well, hold on, hold on. And, and look at this conversation. God says, why are you angry? And why is, has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at your door and this desire is for you, but you should rule over it. God is saying, hey, 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 instead of being upset at your brother for succeeding, 
if you do the right thing, won't you succeed just like him? I'm not playing favorites here, Cain. This has to do with your behavior. You did not do what I asked, but if you do what I ask, same thing. Like, things will be fine. God initiates the dialogue. God is seeking a relationship. God does not want to punish him. God is trying to avoid the whole problem of sin. He doesn't want him to kill his brother. Now, Cain doesn't listen to God. He kills his brother in verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Who's initiating the dialogue? God. God is seeking and initiating a relationship, a dialogue. Let's talk about this. What went wrong? What happened? And Cain, you know, it, it, it doesn't go well, but in the end, God still doesn't kill him. He gives him an opportunity. The Bible is the story of God seeking a relationship with us. The Bible is not a book with instructions of how we can somehow pull ourselves up to God. It's about God seeking us. And it does reveal to us God's will. But here's the thing. The will of God and, and, and the commandments and, and, and the guidelines, this is something that helps us in the relationship. It does not replace the relationship. Does that make sense? God puts the relationship first. He wants a relationship with us. And then as we follow these guidelines, it makes the relationship healthier and stronger and better and more enjoyable. But it does not re replace the relationship. Now, I have a personal story to share. Maybe some of you have met my dog. His name is Pluto. And we got him as a rescue when we were living in Georgia. My wife thought that life was too calm and we needed more chaos. And without us doing any research, we got some sort of Jack Russell Terrier mix. I'm guessing he came from a home that was not very healthy. His first week in our house, we have like a trial week. This first week in our house, he was so calm and so quiet. And we're like, oh, this dog is so sweet. We'll keep them. Well, once we bought, you know, all the things for the dog, the food, the kennel, and then took him to the vet and took all those things. And once we made a big investment and we said, we're keeping him, he showed his true colors. <laughs> I mean, that dog is fast and energetic. I would take him to the dog park and other dog owners would say, what did you feed your dog? Like switch to decaf. I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with my dog. He's just, he runs laps by himself in the... So we had this, this beautiful little dog. We still have him. And our house, we had about an acre of land and we didn't have a fenced-in backyard. And our backyard was just this wooded area. So there was the grass portion and then there was like a creek and just a bunch of woods. And then that separated us from the next neighborhood. And then we had neighbors on our sides and we lived in a circle. So there's a road that goes around, there's houses on both sides, and the whole circle is about half a mile. So I had gone to school, dropped off my kids. On the way back, I stopped by the gym. I had just a good workout, and I'm coming home, and like my legs are rubbery, I'm tired, I'm sweaty, it's Georgia, the day is getting hot at this point. And as I'm going in, I don't know if I was taking out the trash, or what, something happened, the dog ran. And I was like, oh, man. Like, this is just what I needed. So I 
I grab some treats, stuff them in my pocket, and I go out there calling for my dog. And he is not interested in coming home. I mean, he is happy. He is running, and I'm chasing him around this circle that we live in. And the main reason I'm chasing him is not because I love him so much. I just, I don't want to have to explain to my wife and to my kids that the dog ran away and I didn't go after him. So here I go chasing the dog, and it's hot, and I'm already tired, and I'm sweating, and my shirt's starting to stick to me, and there is bugs. Like if you lived in, in South, like right on the border with Florida, there's just, there's always bugs. It doesn't matter what time of the year it is. And they just get stuck to your sweat. And I'm chasing after this dog. And he doesn't, I mean, I have treats in my pocket. I'm calling him. And he's running through people's backyards. And I'm going and apologizing. And people are laughing. And some of them, you know, try to help me get the dog. But he just runs right by. And he come right by my feet and keep going. I couldn't grab him. And people are laughing. Now, I'm embarrassed that I have no control over my dog. I'm wondering what the neighbors are thinking about me. Also, this is Georgia. I'm hoping nobody shoots me as I'm running through people's backyards, chasing after my dog. And he's having a grand old time. And being a pastor, I started thinking theologically about the situation. And I said, is this what I do to God? I run away, and I think, freedom, yeah, I'm happy, and I'm running out, and and here is God with like the equivalent of treats in his pockets, right? He's like, I have a better life for you. Here's something you would really love. And I'm like, no, I'm doing my own thing. And my dog, he's running through puddles. He's got mud on him. He's wet. He smells bad at this point. You guys know how wet dogs smell. And, and he's going out there and he does not care about all the trouble and the embarrassment and the anger that he's causing me as he runs around. And then eventually I go back home to grab a drink. I'm starting to get a headache. I'm not feeling great. And, and the dog comes to my backyard. I'm like, oh, good. You know, he repented. He came to his senses. And I also take out my phone. I start moving appointments around. I'm not going to make it to my morning appointment. I'm trying to see if I can reschedule some things. And no, I, I don't want to tell him why, right? Because I'm chasing my dog all morning. So the dog... I, I come out to get him and I have his, his bowl with his food and I'm shaking it so it makes noise and I'm trying to get his attention and he, he looks at me for a brief moment and he runs into the woods. I mean, it's not really woods, it's like the thicket and there's, there's a stream and, and he disappears and I'm calling him and I'm like, oh. So I try to make my, like he's a little guy as you can see in the picture, he just ran under everything. There is thorns and briars and things growing. And I'm trying to make my way through this thing. And I'm getting scratched and my shirt's getting snagged. And I'm, my legs are getting scratched with the thorns. And I make it to the backyard of neighbors that I never talked to them. It's, this is like another neighborhood. The, the street from the entrance is like way on the other side. But it connects to this thicket in the back. And I go there and I'm hoping everybody's okay. And I'm trying to find my dog. And anyway, lunchtime comes around. It's really hot. I'm tired. I have a headache. And the dog is not coming, and I'm just frustrated. And eventually, he's had enough, he gets tired, and he lays down in the shade, and just breathing, <laughs> and, and I come up to this dog. And I'm reminded, once again, you know, I'm a pastor, so I'm, I'm thinking about the story of the lost sheep, and how the, the, the shepherd found the lost sheep, and he picked it up, and he was so happy, and he called everybody, he was rejoicing. And when I finally grabbed my dog, I am not rejoicing. I'm like, you know what you did to me? And I pick him up, 
and I'm carrying him back. And instead of whispering, I'm so happy. I'm like, bad dog, bad dog, don't do And as I'm going through this experience, I begin to think, is this why sometimes I hesitate to repent and come back to God? Because I know how angry I got at my dog for disrespecting me, for running away, for not obeying, for causing me all this problem and these issues. And, and if I think that God's going to behave like I behave, then suddenly I'm afraid of coming back. And I wanted to punish the dog. And I'm like, do I punish him? But is he like, does he know this? Like, is this? And I'm like thinking theologically, like, is this, like, if I am a God to my dog, which is not true, but like, how should I behave, right? Like, how do I, like, but because of that struggle, I wonder if that impacts how I relate to God. I'm afraid that he's going to be angry at me. I'm afraid that he's going to punish me. So I think that before I come back to God, I have to make up for my sin somehow. Well, maybe if I suffer a lot, then after I suffered enough, then I can come back to God because you'll be happier, right, if I suffered. I mean, that's not in the Bible. That's horrible theology. But I read that into it because of my human nature, because of how I felt relating to my dog. I think God will feel that way about me. So I, I hesitate to come back to God. But the Bible is clear. We're going to talk more about this next week. God is super happy when we come back. That's what He wants all along. He wants that relationship. He wants to hold you in His arms and carry you back and... As I was carrying my dog back and yelling, you know, whispering, bad dog, and had to go through the thicket again. Now I can't use my hands, and there's just thorns and things hitting me in the face, and I'm itchy from the plants, and I get, and I finally get home, and I have to give him a bath and give him food and water, and then he just goes to nap, and he's perfectly happy. He had the best day of his life. <laughs> and it made me think, how much work do I cause God? Here he is trying to save me. And I'm running around, unaware of the danger. One of the reasons I was chasing after my dog, I didn't want him to get hit by a car. He doesn't understand cars. He doesn't even realize the dangers. I didn't want him to get lost and not find his way back home. So I'm chasing him, and he's not aware of any of the dangers. And it made me think. There's this passage in Matthew chapter 18, verses 11 through 12. says, For the Son of Man has come to do what? Save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it assuredly, assuredly, right? For sure. It's not maybe. It's not. There's good chances. Assuredly. I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. What is God's plan? What is God's desire? To save everybody. That's what God wants. That what makes, that's what makes him happy. He's actively pursuing us. This is the God of the Bible. Jeremiah uh, did I skip? No, I already... Okay, yes. So Jeremiah 31, verse 3. The Lord has appeared of old to me. So this is not a new thing. Saying, yes, I have what? Loved you with what kind of love? Does it run out? I mean, it was an everlasting love then, but I mean, it's been a long time since the time of Jeremiah. Maybe now it's like a little bit low. Maybe God's running out of love. Is that possible? Not running out of love. 
He's not running low on power either. He says, therefore, with loving kindness, this is a word for love that they have in Hebrew and we don't have the equivalent in English. It's love, but it's more. It's like this loving kindness that's just always looking for you and never gets tired of chasing after you and wants you at all costs. With loving kindness, I have drawn you. God draws us, attracts us, pulls us closer to Him using loving kindness. This verse is from the Old Testament. Jeremiah saying, from of old, this is who God is. Jesus came and gave us a clearer picture of who God is. Not a new version of God. The same God. The one that's always been there for us. The one that's looking for us. The birth of Jesus is what we're celebrating this season. And that revelation of the heart of God. Now come back next week for a little bit more on that. But for this week, I have a question for you. Looking at the Bible and seeing beyond the shadow of a doubt that God desires to be in a personal relationship with you. What keeps you from responding to His desire to have a relationship with you? He's not going to force it. Love does not force things. He only invites you. If you'd like to consider that, like maybe you're already in that relationship. and like, I just want to renew it. I want to recommit. It's kind of like re renewing your vows, right? I want to recommit my heart to God. And maybe, I don't know everybody who's here. Maybe you've been on this journey. And like, you know what? I think this is, I'm willing to give it a try. I'll, 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 I'll give God the, I'll, I'll open myself to him. It's like, yeah, let's, let's give this relationship a try. If you'd like to learn more, please seek me out. Talk to me afterwards. There's an email in the back of the bulletin. You can reach out if you're watching online. Leave a comment. Go on our website. Reach out to us. But if you just like to make that decision, like, I, I, I want to give this a try. I invite you to stand. And we'll close with prayer. And by standing, we're saying, Lord, I hear and I see that you want a relationship with me. I'm, I'm interested in that too. You know, right back at you. I, I want to be in this relationship with you. Stand with me as we have a closing prayer. Father in heaven, we just looked at a few chapters in Genesis, just the very beginning. And instead of imposing questions on the text, we just kind of look for the highlights. So what is this telling us about you? These stories. And Lord, it's become really clear. And it's throughout the Bible, and especially in the ministry of Jesus and his life in the New Testament. You're totally biased towards us. You want to save us. You want a relationship with us. And Lord, we're standing right now because we're open to this. We want a relationship with you as well. Lord, you know where we are in our spiritual journey. I pray that you would take us where we are and draw us closer to you. Lord, I pray that you would connect us with people who can encourage us and help us in this journey. And Lord, thank you for taking the first step. Thank you that you choose to save us. You seek us out. Now, you won't force that on us, but you desire to save all of us. So Lord, this morning we want to accept it. We invite you into our hearts. We accept your free gift of salvation. Lord, we want your righteousness to cover us because we could never do it on our own. Lord, thank you so much for sending Jesus. Next week, we're going to talk more about that. But Lord, ultimately, 
thank you for being such an amazing, loving God. And forgive us for the times, Lord, that we somehow compare you to ourselves and think less of you. Help us to always challenge that with what the Bible says about you. That you love us, that you want to save us, and that you're looking forward, just like we are, to the day that we will be together forever. Lord, until that day, please bless us and make us a blessing. And draw us closer to you this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.